folks, and it's just, it's so beautiful here, Chris. It's almost English. Why is it almost English? There are horses. There are horses. And hunting. That's true. And we've already discussed fox and hunting. We, we did, but we didn't. Did we talk about, it wasn't beagles, was it? What, what um, little four-legged furry things do you use to chase? Well, you never refer to them as dogs. They're always hounds, fox See, hounds. See, I fox never do, did I? <laughs> well, folks, welcome. This is our guest, Patty Naw, who is joining us right away this morning. Um, Patty, I'm so glad that you've taken time to Thank share you. your garden, to share your life, to tell us about these interesting things that you're involved in especially the bees. We're very thrilled to be talking to you about the bee population today. I'm happy to share what I know. It's, it's a, a lot of it is self-learned and just through observation and tending to them for about 10 or so, 12 years, but I'm happy to, to welcome pe more people into the world of honeybees. Yes, the world of honeybees, which is a precarious world these days. Very, very. Um, lots of things can go wrong. More things can go wrong than can go right. But we have to remember the bees were imported from uh, the, with the Europeans when they came over to this continent. There were no honeybees on North American continent, on the North American continent until the Europeans brought them over because they were not only a source of sweetness in their life, but they were also, um, you know, they knew that they were excellent pollinators. And so along with the honeybee, they brought the dandelion and the clover and the dandelion, especially because it was the pioneers first produce department. They could eat every part of the dandelion and they brought the honeybee with them to help pollinate it. I had no idea that and dandelion was intentionally no. <laughs> that, that started a whole other industry yes, it did. that nobody really anticipated, right. something called a herbicide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Patty, let's start in the beginning. What, what sparked your interest in bees? Uh, teaching. I was a, a second grade teacher for 21 years and my first year I'd taken 10 years off with my kids prior to that taught special ed but my first year back to teaching there was a brand new science curriculum in 1990 in the Blue Valley District and the, the, the main thrust of the first few months of school for the science curriculum were insects and I thought oh, who is going to get how can you get kids interested in insects well I realized quickly kids love bugs and the more I learned about insects, because I had to teach it, the more I realized what an incredible, incredible division of, of the animal world the insects are. In fact, in my world, I decided, you know, insects rule, that they're going to they're gonna outlive everybody because of their short life cycles and their adaptability. And so through all of my study of insect, I just became more and more focused with the honeybee. And when I, I started realizing how they communicate and how they pollinate and how they make all the beautiful flowers in the world possible for us. And then one day I uh, had stopped at a farmer's market, a roadside, a little roadside stand. He was selling honey and I bought a jar of honey from him and we, we talked about it. He actually showed me my first inside of a hive and how they make the wax and that kind of stuff. And then he got, he grew very despondent. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, well, my bees have to fly farther and farther and farther to get their source of nectar and pollen. And I said, why? And he said, well, because of indiscriminate roadside herbicide spraying. You know, they're killing mm. all, what, what we think are noxious weeds are beneficial to the insects, and especially the honeybee. 
And he said, um, you know, and, and bees die when their wings wear out. So the more they fly, the shorter their lifespan, which is incredibly short as it is. How short is it? What is it? An adult bee in the summer will live about a month. And that's why the queen is so important, because she has to constantly be laying eggs to replenish the hive population. Now, all that diminishes in the winter. They go inside their hive, and um, they just basically keep the queen alive through the winter, feed her, groom her. They eat the honey that, that they make that I don't take, and they survive as best they can through the winter. But um, So they'll live longer in the winter because they're not flying. But in the summer, an adult honeybee, you know, maybe lives about a month. And that's and they like to keep their flying radius within, an, uh, within a mile. They're, they're, uh, you know, if they have to go outside that mile radius, two miles, they're going to even have a shorter lifespan. So how many um, bees in a typical hive that you have are like coming to maturity each month cycle. How about how many bees turn a turnover, I guess? Well, um, a healthy hive in the summer, in, in late spring, early summer, could have 80 to 100,000 bees. That would be a very strong, healthy hive. Of those, there's only one queen, maybe 100 drones, and the drones do nothing. They cannot, they don't have a stinger, they cannot collect honey, they can't gather pollen, they can't fix the hive. All they can do is mate with the queen, but he can't mate with the queen of his hive because, number one, she's already fertile, and that would be incest. So they keep, the, the, the total organization of the hive isn't controlled by the queen, it's controlled by those worker bees, all the females, the 80 to 100,000 worker bees or all girls. And they keep those extra drones around in case there's another hive that is in need of a new queen who has yet to be fertilized or mated with. So um, um, those, literally those female worker bees, they decide when the hive's gonna swarm. They decide where the best sources of nectar and pollen are. They decide if they're sworn and half the hive leaves with the old queen where they're going to, they, they send scout bees out to decide where the, a suitable cavity is that's dry, that's dark, for to take their old queen to start a new hive. But then meanwhile, back at the old hive, they, the worker bees have decided certain, certain eggs that, if not treated in a special way by the worker bees, would just grow up to be another worker bee. They are fed... Uh, a dozen of them are fed only royal jelly, which to this day, I don't think the scientists have figured out the compound. It's made in the brain of the worker bee. And they feed those, those dozen or so eggs, female eggs, just royal jelly. And they make a bigger cell because the queen's body is going to be bigger to accommodate her large abdomen, which accommodates all the eggs that she, she lays one to 2,000 eggs a day throughout her life in the spring and summer. So when, when those worker bees decide for whatever reason, and scientists haven't really determined all the many causes that make a hive swarm, they will, um, uh, they will uh, lay these dozen or so queens. They all hatch or emerge within about a day of each other. And then one of them will have to sting the other queen bees to death so that there's only one survivor. 
And so she survives. Now she is infertile. She will have to fly off. Her only flight she ever takes in life, except she's in the middle of a swarm. She will have to fly off and hopefully there will be drones from other hives um, that will pick up her pheromones and mate with her. And then she goes back to the hive, spend her life in darkness. She can't eat, feed herself. She can't groom herself. She's just an egg laying machine and it's all controlled by those by those girls. Wow. That's amazing. That's more than amazing. <laughs> you told me so much in about, what, how long have we been talking? Not even 10 minutes yet that I, I just, there's so many ways I want to go with this conversation. I don't even know where to start. You can tell she was a teacher, can't you? Absolutely. Oh, this is brilliant, Patty. Um, wow. Okay, so it really does get down to all the females. First of all, I have to be honest and admit, I never knew what a swarm was. So we're going to take a really quick break. Okay. And I'm going to think about my questions. And we'll be right back after this, folks, so stay tuned. This is Patty Na joining us on Growing Trends this morning. Joining Chris and I, we're talking about bees, the bee population, and the bee problem. So this is pertinent to you, so come back after the break. Would you like to complete a landscape project, flower bed, or your own produce garden at home in just a weekend? Would you like the project to be quick and easy to complete? How about all of the instructions so that you can do it yourself easily? Of course you do! With over 40 years experience of creating multi-award winning projects, we decided to take this knowledge and our clients request to be able to create some smaller projects themselves and developed the Weekend Garden Kit. Now you can, in one weekend, gather the plants, fixtures, and fittings to complete a project in one weekend. This unique patented system makes the process simple, cost-effective, and quick, cutting in half the usual time to set out and do the planting. The fabric in the kit acts as a landscape mulch to reduce water loss and help prevent weeds. Want to know more? Visit pickagardy.com. That's P-I-C-A-G-A-R-D-I.com. Do you have unwanted items in your home or office or just want to get rid of things you no longer need? Cerna Brothers can help. Cerna Brothers can clean out an entire estate or simply remove unwanted items from your home or office. Cerna Brothers recycles and donates when possible to reduce the amount it takes to the landfill. Cerna Brothers can help with all your junk and debris needs. Call 913-484-9564 or visit CernaBros.com. That's S-I-R-N-A-B-R-O-S.com, your local junk and debris removal service. Weston Red Barn Farm is like visiting a turn-of-the-century working farm. In the spirit of preserving the American dream of farming, a trip to the Weston Red Barn Farm offers you the opportunity to do just that. Featuring traditional farm animals and crops on the working farm, a country store with the most tasty fresh produce and local specialties, facilities for weddings, bonfires, hayrides, virtually every event, and even a fall festival where families can come pick pumpkins and apples, take a hayride, and enjoy the country. Visit WestonRedBarnFarm.com and come see us this weekend for an experience that will take you back in time and make your heart sing. WestonRedBarnFarm.com Flutter by a 
So welcome back to uh, Broadcast, and we're having this fascinating discussion about things. And Andrew, you had a question. No, you had a question. I did? Yes. Oh, I did, yes. My question was, what happens to the bees when they die? Well, the honeybee population is fastidious. They like a very clean home. And so they're always going around, patching up any cracks in the hive, using propolis, which is they harvest that from the sap of trees. It's incredibly sticky. Um, they're carrying out their bee dirt, so there's none of their leftover lunch left in the, in the hive. And they, they actually carry out dead bees. They don't want anybody, anything to um, not make, they want to keep their hive pretty sterile. And as I, as I mentioned that, that reminds me that, that I think that's one of the reasons why the only food that never goes bad is honey. They have unearthed, unearthed it from Egyptian tombs, mm -hmm. um, and it's still edible. It will crystallize, but it's, um, it's pure. And I think the honeybee's housekeeping habits must attribute to that somehow. I don't know that for a fact, but just my own observations. Um, so back to what happens when they die. In the wintertime, I'll go out, and if it's very, very cold, there won't be any outside activity. They like it to be preferably above, uh, their, best case, their best weather is like 60 or above, sunny and warm, I mean, sunny and calm. But in the winter, you know, here in Kansas, we'll occasionally get, uh, you know, a 40-degree day, a 50, and if the sun is shining just right on the hive, that will warm, warm some of the housekeeping bees up, and they'll carry out the dead bees, and they'll sort of pile up in front of the hive because they, um, they don't want to fly any farther in the winter. So I just leave them there, and then when spring finally comes, then they really gear up the housekeeping, and they'll, they'll get rid of them, and they're just they're making dirt. They're part of the, the, the cycle of dirt. You know, when you think of all the insects that die and where do they go, they land on the ground and then they contribute to other matter and you know, you've got that whole life cycle. But you won't find them around a healthy hive. You won't find them in front of the hive unless it's wintertime. Um, but I think we mentioned earlier that in the summer, uh, uh, an adult honeybee will live about a month. And, but they, they go, they have like anywhere from a 28 to a, um, I think it's 32-day life, life cycle as they metamorphosize. So a few days, they spend a few days as an egg. They spend, um, I think, oh, I'm going to get my numbers around 10 or 12 days as a larva where they're just eating machines, and that's when all the worker bees are, that are inside the hive are feeding them a combination of honey and pollen, which is called bee bread, and that's what the worker, the worker bees in their cells get as larvae. And then they go into the, they cap the cell, they go into the pupa stage. And uh, when they emerge, they've already been in the hive, but they haven't been contributing to the hive work because they've been, you know, either at the egg, larva, or pupa stage um, about a month. And then they spend the first three weeks of their life in the hive doing household chores, feeding the queen was one of their first, well, the first job is to make their bed. They clean out their cell that they just, emerged from to get ready for another egg to be laid in by the queen. Um, the queen is an egg-laying machine. She'll lay one to 2,000 eggs a day in the spring and summer, and they have to always keep those cells ready for either uh, her egg, a new egg, or honey, that the, that the, or pollen that the bees bring back. When they are born as an adult bee, 
they uh, will the first job take care of their their own cell, clean it up. Then they take care of the queen. They feed her, they groom her, and they're picking up her pheromones. They're learning, hmm, what does my hive smell like? And then uh, then they'll start doing maintenance around the hive. They'll build wax cells, they'll cap cells, they'll feed baby bees, they'll be the nurse bee. There's dozens and dozens of jobs that they go through in a sequence inside the hive. When they build the wax cells, where do they generate the wax from? From their abdomen. They have on the on their tummies, on their abdomen, they have about six little pouches almost that if you, you can spot them on a bee, you'll see these little kind of clear waxy protrusions. And they're stimu the wax production is stimulated by, especially by a new hive. If you're starting up a new hive and you don't have any established frame or comb for them. Um, again, I don't know where all this incredible intuity comes from, but... Um, certain things stimulate their wax production when it's needed. So then, oh, so back to their jobs. So then they've got a week left basically to live. And now they become field bees the most, when they're experienced. And their first trip out of their hive, they back out. And as they back out, they're sensing where the sun is on them. Where is the sun? So when I return in about an hour, I know the sun won't have moved that much, but I want it in that general area of my body. And um, from then on, they don't have to back out. They can, you know, on, on, their, on their exit from the hive. Um, and then uh, they'll go, I think we talked earlier about how they communicate and they do this incredible dance. When um, worker bees have found a good source of nectar, they come back to the hive and they do one of two dances. They'll do the circle dance if the source is closer than like a football field. And their circle dance, they, they go clockwise and then at the, at the end of the first circle, they, they do this little wiggle and the little wiggle has to do with the direction and then they go counterclockwise and they wiggle in the same direction. It's all related to the sun and the source of nectar in the hive. This, where, where this little wiggle dance, how it's where it comes falls in within the circle pattern. If the source of nectar is farther, a longer distance than say a football field, they do the figure eight dance, and they start at the, like at the top of an eight, and when they get to the turning point to the bottom circle, that's where the wiggle is. So it's like a half a circle, wiggle, 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 complete the bottom circle, wiggle, 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 complete the top circle go back around and they do the wiggle in the middle of the two circles of the eight. And again, that wiggle is all about the direction of the source of nectar. Patty, when the dance of the bees, uh, I'm curious how this is going to, how this happens then when they're transporting bees across the country, you know, to pollinate right. up and, and down the east and the west coast. And they talk about how this is so disorienting for the bees. Well, as long as they have their queen, that's home, and, and they have her pheromones, you know, they'll find her no matter what. But I was pondering this, and here was my thought. Okay, there are certain crops that can only be pollinated by honeybees. One of them is almonds. You wouldn't have an almond to eat if it were not for a honeybee because of the shape of their body, their size, and, and the construction of the almond flower. Uh, um, that's back in cucumbers. 
um, blueberries, cranberries require. These are exclusive to honeybees. Mm -hmm. Now you could go out with a little Q-tip and brush the pollen off mm. of one almond flower and go over to another tree and, and if you really wanted an almond, but it's so much easier to have the bees do it for us. Oh my goodness. Does, does that mean that the wild bees won't do that as well? Uh, not those certain crops. We have native bees in Kansas, very good pollinators, but think of this, they don't communicate. Mm -hmm. They don't they don't communicate with their fellow bees. They don't have a queen bee to keep them all together to accommodate the communication in the sense of all for one, one for all, but the honeybee does. Because of their communication and their and their uh, their diligence to the queen, they they are one unit. They work as one. And and then the other thing I thought about with this transporting them in huge semis up and down the coast to, to pollinate exclusively these crops. Imagine if you could only, if you had to limit your diet to one food, and if you're a bee, your diet is nectar, and if all you're eating is almond nectar, which turns to honey through the through the saliva of the bee, and and it goes into they have a they have a, a honey stomach and a personal stomach, and the honey stomach that's what they take back to the hive and they spit it out and they give it to the bees, or in the hive to put it in a cell and cap it. The personal stomach is just for them to kind of get through the day. But if you're limited to just one source for however long they're there, I don't know the farming, the agriculture behind it, how long they have to be there to pollinate all of this almond grove. Um, wouldn't that weaken your defenses a little bit? I mean, aren't we, and I know I'm not saying our, our diet and our system is anything like the honeybees, but we have such a variety of foods. If we don't get the right nutrition from one food one day, you know, our body tells us to eat more of something else the next day. And if by telling the bees, you know, here's your grove, and, and it, to them it's a wonderful source of food at the moment, but if that's right. all it is, that was my, I never read that, but that was my own conclusion. Now we're reading about all these other sources of possible uh, causes for their demise. And uh, it's, um, the, the, the answer's not there yet, but there, and it may be multiple, multiple. Well, I'm sure, it is. I'm sure there's all kinds of variables yeah. that are contributing to so it. So how did the honeybee evolve from the wild bee? I don't know, but the honeybee's been around a long, long time, and I imagine just like, you know, any any species has evolved, whether it's the, from the... It seems to be incredibly uh, cultivated and, and intense in its ability to um, maintain a, a colony. Oh, it is. It's a lot. It's uh, it takes it takes a village of bees to maintain this one, you know. And, and they do it. Their brain is the size of the period at the end of your sentence, and they could they they do this incredible hierarchy of skills in the hive, and and um, you know communicate by dancing. And no one told them what to do. You know, that's when one day when I first got my bees, I just sat on the ground and just watched them come and go. For like two hours, some had pollen. You could tell some were, some were ready to do the dance, and I just and I kept thinking, my gosh, if they can do all that they do with the size of their brain and living less than a month, we need as humans need to trust our instinct a whole lot more. <laughs> we need just. to get busy. We do. <laughs> we could be doing a whole lot more than we do. That's that's true. They say we only use what ten percent of our brain. Well, and we think if we don't read it in a published book or 
hear it on the internet or whatever that it's not true but you mm. know we just have to trust our own instincts because look what it's done for the honeybee population but how they evolve I don't have the answer but I know that there are many many very beneficial native cans and bees that do a lot of good pollination as well and the bumblebee as well who does is a great pollinator but they don't have the organization of the honeybee what are some of the other crops you said almonds cucumbers did you say blueberries um, blueberries cranberries uh, apples if, if I laid out this is what the, the farmer told me who who made me want to be a beekeeper he said if you laid out 12 apples that represented all the food that people eat today there would only be three if you didn't have honeybees. Mm -hmm. Not to say that they wouldn't be pollinated, but when you consider, again, back to their communication, how they must be such a, a much more efficient pollinator than, than other insects and birds because they can tell them, hey, let's all go over here. This is blooming now. You know, in, in two more days, you know, this, this field will be blooming. In. And so um, they're just... They just, they do a pretty good job of what they do. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize that, I just assumed all bees had, not honey necessarily, but had a queen and had hives in a sense, but they don't. No, uh-uh. Um, and, and I don't, I, I know that the, the bumblebee population, they are a little more closely organized to the honeybees, but their hives are usually underground. Their colonies are, are underground, so and they they don't need humans. I mean, the honeybees could make a colony or a hive without a man-made built structure, but when when for, for for generations and generations, people have depended on the honeybee not only you know mostly for its honey. They realized that this is a great source before we had cane sugar and all this kind of stuff. A great source of, of not only sweetness but nutrition. And then in the 1800s, um, a man came up with the same concept that we use to this day of, the, of bee space. So he came up with this box that, that I'll show you outside that um, has about 10 frames in it. And they're separated just enough to allow the bee's body to work through. Um, years ago, you saw pictures of the old wicker skeps, like an, a, a domed basket. And problem with that is when you went to extract honey, you ruined the, the comb that they'd already built and, and um, you destroyed more of what they'd already, you know, with what they'd already constructed. With today's design, like I said, goes back to the 1800s, um, I can extract honey and not disturb the hive, it, the construction of the hive. And that's a whole nother fascinating um, topic, the precision in which they construct their hive, everything being, every cell being the same size, the same shape, the uniformity, same, yep. it's just amazing. And, and each one of those cells, um, like I said, can either hold an, an egg, which will grow up to a larva, pupa, and then come out as an adult, or the same cell can hold honey, or the same cell can hold pollen. And in a healthy hive, when you pull up one of those standard frames, um, you know you've got a good strong queen if you're seeing like a rainbow pattern so that um, the bottom of the rainbow, the bottom of the frame will have mostly brood in it, the baby bees. Then, then that will be framed by honey, capped honey, and then that will be uh, the outer, outer arch of the rainbow would be pollen, capped pollen. 
when you see erratic patterns, like a couple bee, couple brood here, a little bit of pollen there, a little bit of honey over here, and then some bunch of empty cells, and then she goes around to another cell, that's a sign that your queen's getting weak, and then you need to replace her. So you, how do you replace her? Well, you have to buy one. Um, and usually it's done in the spring. Like if I know I've got to replace a queen, I'll order one, and um, like in February, and then she's usually delivered in April. And the, most of the queens are raised anymore in California. Uh, I think originally mine came from Texas, but now they're in California. And she comes in a little box, and, and she comes with her own attendants because she can't even take care of herself. And, and this is the worst part of beekeeping. Then I have to go in and find the old queen and kill her and put oh, the new queen in. That's what I was wondering. This, this sounds like a, uh, a royal procession, doesn't it? Well, the state carriage arrives. Well, <laughs> some things never change in history. Isn't it true? You two, you have to displace the yeah. old person who was on the throne to yeah. put in the new yeah. queen bee. And that's to prevent the hive from swarming. Because as a beekeeper, you don't want them to swarm because it weakens the numbers, which mm. weakens the production. Well, we're going to take a break here, Patty. And when we come back, let's talk about bee swarming. Okay. That sounds pretty interesting. All right, we'll uh, be right back. A trip to the Weston Red Barn Farm is like visiting a turn-of-the-century working farm. In the spirit of preserving the American dream of farming, a trip to the Weston Red Barn Farm offers you the opportunity to do just that. Featuring traditional farm animals and crops on the working farm, a country store with the most tasty fresh produce and local specialties, facilities for weddings, bonfires, hayrides, virtually every event, and even a fall festival where families can come pick pumpkins and apples, take a hayride, and enjoy the country. Visit WestonRedBarnFarm.com and come see us this weekend for an experience that will take you back in time and make your heart sing. WestonRedBarnFarm.com have unwanted items in your home or office or just want to get rid of things you no longer need? Cerna Brothers can help. Cerna Brothers can clean out an entire estate or simply remove unwanted items from your home or office. Cerna Brothers recycles and donates when possible to reduce the amount it takes to the landfill. Cerna Brothers can help with all your junk and debris needs. Call 913-484-9564 or visit CernaBros.com. That's S-I-R-N-A-B-R-O-S.com, your local junk and debris removal service. like to complete a landscape project, flower bed, or your own produce garden at home in just a weekend? Would you like the project to be quick and easy to complete? How about all of the instructions so that you can do it yourself easily? Of course you do! With over 40 years experience of creating multi-award winning projects, we decided to take this knowledge and our clients' request to be able to create some smaller projects themselves and developed the Weekend Garden Kit. Now you can, in one weekend, gather the plants, fixtures, and fittings to complete a project in one weekend. This unique patented system makes the process simple, cost-effective, and quick, cutting in half the usual time to set out and do the planting. The fabric in the kit acts as a landscape mulch to reduce water loss and help prevent weeds. Want to know more? Visit pickagardy.com. That's P-I-C-A-G-A-R-D-I.com. 
welcome back everybody. We're still talking to Paddy about bees and the, the subject is just incredible. Um, Anne wants me to talk and ask about swarming because uh, everybody thinks of bees and, and swarms and being stung and there's all sorts of sensible things you can do in situations like that and we're just about to hear them now. Well, first of all, as a beekeeper, I don't want my bees to swarm because when they do, half of the hive leaves with the old queen and that's the swarm and they're looking for a suitable cavity to pick up shop again. And it could be the eave of an old barn, it could be uh, a, a hollow of a tree, could be anywhere that's dark and dry, dark and waterproof. And actually when they swarm, they're very docile. They don't have a hive to protect. So they're not gonna, they're not out to sting you. If you see a hive that, a swarm that could be at the size of three, four footballs hanging from a branch, just leave them be. There are scout bees searching, going out to different places. They, those scout bees, when they find something, will come back and then those scout bees have to agree on what's going to be, where are we taking the queen to? She's buried deep inside that swarm. She doesn't even probably know she's out of the hive because she's just, you know, uh, surrounded by this mass of bees. And, uh, and, and they don't want to sting. A, a honeybee doesn't really want to sting anyway because their stinger is shaped like a barb. And when they, when they sting uh, and they pull themselves away, the stinger stays in you along with many times the poison sac, and you can even see it. And the stinger is continuing to pulse the poison into you. So, and then because their abdomen's been ripped out, they, that, bee, that bee dies. So they really, really don't want to sting you. They mostly sting. The most aggressive I've ever seen my bees is when I harvest the honey. They don't, you know, I have to leave them two full, at least two full high bodies of honey for the winter. And I put my supers on top. And that's the honey I can take. But still, they don't, you know, they're hoarders. They don't want to get rid of it. They are always saving for a rainy day. So uh, swarms, if you see one, it, it could be worth $100 to a beekeeper if it's easily accessible. You can call a local beekeeper if they have the equipment and a new a, a body set up from a box built for them. Um, they simply come shake, shake the branch if it's a low branch. Now, if it's way up in a tree, you know, it involves some equipment. You may not get someone to, to come pick it up, but they'll shake the, uh, the branch into the box. And then you just watch and you hope the queen got in the box. And you'll know that by leaving a little opening at the bottom. And if the worker bees start marching in, the, the queen's inside the hive. And then when it might take an hour for them all to, the, a bunch of them got, you know, dropped in with your shake, you, you put the cover on and then you just wait for all the little bees to march inside around their queen and get the things figured out and and then the beekeeper can take that box and start a new hive. Okay, so I, I have a question. Since they really don't want to sting you, you mentioned when those 12 um, possible queens, they have to sting the others to death. How can they do that? Um, the, the bee's body and other animals' bodies don't have the thickness of our hide, hide, the hide on our skin. And so they, can, they might sting and not lose their stinger oh, okay. in another bee. But in our skin, they will okay. lose it because we're just, we've got 
thick skin. Right. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense because I was wondering about that when we were talking about the queen bee. Um, and bee stings, what do you do when you, have you been stung a lot? I have. And every time I, I, uh, think, okay, this one won't hurt as much because <laughs> some people do get conditioned to them, but no, 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 they all hurt. Um, but what you want to do first is, is scrape in the direction of the barb. So a credit card, if you don't have anything handy, would work. A thing, if you have a good fingernail, um, because you think of it as a fish hook. And if you scrape into the flesh, into the hook, it's going to dig down deeper. You'll notice sometimes, too, that little poison sac still pulsing away. So just scrape away. And then, and then different people react differently. I have an EpiPen here at the house just in case I have someone come by who happens to get stung and gets that, you know, that, that shock reaction but um then for like three days the sight of the of the sting on me anyway gets hot it gets red it gets hard and then after about three days it's gone mm. so chris you were talking about somebody who got stung. yeah i had a friend did we they were, do a bee dance they, <laughs> well actually they did yes um david and i were um planting um a forest in uh, an estate in uh, Sorry, and we came um, as we were. The, the, the plants are in five foot grids, and as we were walking down the line to plant the the, um, the next tree, there was a, a stack of um, hives. I remember they were white, and, and for some reason or other, a whole bunch swarmed or, or descended on David, and, and I, I think he had about fifty or sixty bees on him at one point Yikes. and he was doing this amazing dance as they were trying to get them off and they were stinging him when we finished I think he had about 23 bites something like that because we counted them you have to ask him if he if he has ever suffered from arthritis before the bee stings because they say some people if they're suffering from arthritis will actually want to be stung in the joint by a bee because there's there's a theory that it it may relieve some of the arthritis Kind of like acupuncture? Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. He was uh, 15 at the time, so probably, hopefully, he didn't have arthritis then. <laughs> yeah, not yet. He's still doing the forestry, though. Well, it didn't scar him for life. No, I don't think that's, so. That's very good. You know, when I lived in Costa Rica, um, there was a student there who was stung to death by the, you know, the killer bees. Oh, my. Um, I remember it made the news. I don't remember where he was from, and that's most tragic. What is, we don't have that here in the States, right? I remember there were rumors of those bees coming up from the South, or do you know about that? I think they've reached Texas. Hmm. So they have crossed, and they were, they were Africanized bees that were brought over to South America, and then through swarming, and they're just, they're a honeybee, but they're a much more aggressive honeybee. You asked about when I have to order a queen. Um, I have a choice of nationalities, and you know, do you want an Italian queen, a Russian queen, uh, you know? And um, I, one time, I I varied from my Italian queen, and I had a Russian queen. And that year, I got stung just mowing the yard, which I never had before. And so I stick with my Italian queens. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. But the but the the African. Um, those killer bees are actually just a very, very aggressive honeybee population.